Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is a three-way conversation between me and a pair of inventors slash veterinarians slash parents, Greg Dickens and Dr. Gwen Bradbury. They are a fascinating couple, some of the brightest minds I know, and we had a wide-ranging conversation from everything, uh, sleep deprivation to insect decline to the difference in diagnostic approaches of veterinarians against doctors and how to process the statistical likelihood of death against the statistical likelihood of happiness as well as home childbirth and the ins and outs of that. It was a slightly chaotic conversation in that they have two children, one of whom I think is uh, 16 months old and the other one is literally less than a week old. So there was a few breaks in the conversation, but that has been stitched together into a seamless whole. Thank you to the editing magic of Ben Wren for that. And also, I would like to say thank you to my Patreon subscribers. Uh, You are make it possible for me to do what I do and to do it in the ways that I do it. So I can't I can't thank you enough for that. Also, it in this world of so much hatred online, having this this community of really thoughtful, engaged, interesting, uh, well-meaning uh, just people at my fingertips, my people as it were. It's such a it's such a soothing and wonderful feeling uh, every time you know, something horrible comes up online or I see a, a conversation where people are tearing each other to shreds, then I'll get an email from one of you saying something thoughtful and interesting and lovely and that balances out my life. You would not believe how much. All right, I will get on with it. Um, if you are, if you have not listened to the trilogy, do. If you have not um, seen Ethos, uh, the London shows are now sold out, so uh, you'll have to wait for it to come out on video, but I'll tell you when that comes out. Uh, film on Sunday, let's hope I remember it. And then Mythos is coming out. Uh, that'll be in Sydney, Perth and uh, Melbourne, as well as in London and Edinburgh after after I come back after April. So that's all, I think. Oh, I'm doing the Bugle tour, but I'll be doing it remotely by Skype. And that's end of February, if you're in America. Look it up. Look it up on Andy Zaltzman's website. I think those are all the things that I have to plug. Um, The Audible documentaries, if you listen to Audible or subscribe there, they don't sponsor this show. I don't have any sponsors, but that's available there if you want to listen to that. One on habit change, one on meditation. They are not available in the US. I am looking into seeing if I can get my fingers on it and maybe release it as a Patreon special. So, without further ado, I will let you get on with listening to just a really good, 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 good conversation with Greg Dickens and Dr. Gwen Bradbury. So, who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, That's a really good question. I've realised that I am sans drink. Uh, My name is Greg Dickens. I was originally... Uh, a veterinary surgeon. Uh, I'm now help people invent things and have nice conversations with people who come and drink tea at my house. Yes. Well, I uh, I'm drinking an Earl Grey in a giant cup. Not I don't drink black tea that often. Uh, but uh, you, you, the drinking isn't compulsory. You did drink something before. Yeah, that's true. I don't feel dehydrated. I just feel like I'm not entering into the social contract of having tea. <laughs> Tea, I think, can be a state of mind. Okay. What do you enough. like to drink? I drink almost nothing other than tap water. Uh, we have we have a lot of calcium in our water in Cambridge, and it tastes disgusting, but it's really good for you. 
and it is freely available and I'm poorly organised. Is that a matter of principle or preference? Uh, it's a matter of convenience most of the time uh, and preference to a degree. I think tea is a, an abomination of good water uh, and fun dry leaves <laughs> that you can use for other things. What would you use tea leaves for? Uh, it makes a fine compost. Uh, uh-huh. You could use it to structure um, a paper mache if you wanted it to be more tactile, uh, mixed with, with a, a small amount of water, not enough to make a drink, but a small amount that makes a fine ink. Um, watercolour paint, maybe? I wouldn't drink it. Why is that? Because I don't like it. I mean, why don't you like it? Interesting question. Um, what about it don't you like? Unfamiliarity. Uh, my household growing up was a no-tea household because my mum didn't like it and I assume she got that from her mum who didn't like it. Mm. In the same way as we pass down genetic traits, we also pass down our mimetic traits and I'm sure, sure one of those is tea drinking. What have you been wrestling with recently? Physically or mentally? Uh, both, either. Physically... Start uh, with physical, go to mental, isn't that normal the way? <laughs> yeah, that works. Physically, I've been wrestling with a 21-month-old, or for those people who aren't parents and think that calling babies in months is daft, a nearly two-year-old toddler, uh, and a just under a week old baby. Um, oh, who may or may not wake up while we're talking here. Sleep. It's um, a very sweet little baby. Yes, for people who are listening and not looking, it's, it's kind of pink. Uh, mildly covered in in brown hair uh, and wiggling slightly but its eyes are closed. Um, The reason I've been physically wrestling with those two is that is that the bigger one really wants to come and help the little one Uh, but her idea of help is very heavy-handed hugs involving her entire body weight and patting which involves almost her entire strength. So the wrestling is is to try and separate them without her in some way feeling uh, disenfranchised. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's a thing for young children, particularly, not really understanding the economy of attention. Yeah, well, I guess especially when you go from one to two, the economy of attention uh, up until this point has been. of child-focused attention goes to Talpa, the Mm. first child. Um, Whereas now, it's not only uh, a decrease of 50%, it's that first decrease. I mean, any decrease away from 100% is is devastating um, in in any economic change. Uh, Having to share resources uh, is a a hard shift. Um, And I'm sure when the next one comes along, this little one won't object as much because it's never known 100% attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but trying to keep Tapa on board uh, with the whole childcare process without having her see this as the enemy is is hard work psychologically. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I never had that experience because we came as a pair. I have a twin brother and no other siblings, so we had the amount of tension that we had from the time that we had it. And it sort of never decreased in that way, except insofar as we grew up to an age where we didn't need as much attention or looked after each other or whatever that was. You have the wild caught versus captive bred um, zoo animal analogy in this one, in that 
you have never known true freedom. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Talbot I've never known has. 100% attention. Maybe that's why I, I perform on stage exactly. solo performances. <laughs> I mean, why, I might also explain why I quite like working with other people. Yeah, and why Talbot bangs her head on the floor when she's upset. She's a, a wild animal captured and put in a cage. Oh. She's also just under two and they do weird things. Yeah, that's before they've sort of developed an understanding of other people as people, right? Yeah, we're all just bit players or NPCs in her single-player walkthrough. <laughs> so what have you been wrestling with psychologically, other than obviously the way that a lack of sleep will affect your psychology? Well, I am going to talk about that very briefly because I think it, it flavours the rest of this discussion. Um, the... The change in thinking power and operating memory with lack of sleep is something that I've never really experimented with. And I've got an event coming up in May, which is a look at how well I can do with no sleep whatsoever. Have I told you about this already? No, you haven't. All right, well, I'll keep this short. No, don't. Um, keep no, it as long okay, as you fine, want. I'll keep it as long as I can. Um, so let's take a step back. The UK. Uh, has lost about, by various estimates and, and taking an average across various papers, about 95% of our insect uh, and arthropod diversity. So insects, spiders, um, walking crustaceans, things like that. Um, we're just welcoming somebody else to the room here, which is uh, Dr. Gwen Bradbury, the UK's expert in rabbit clinical behaviour. Uh, and also, uh, lucky me, my wife, and also lives here. Come and sit down. We're Thank in our you. living room, so can't really keep her out. <laughs> and what are you drinking? I am drinking redbush tea. Oh, very good. As I have been drinking it by the gallon for the last week and a half. <laughs> I, is there any reason why redbush tea? You just like it. It's got my caffeine, and I drink a lot. I can drink a lot of it. <laughs> That's fair. I realised. The other day, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that I might be slightly sensitive to red bush tea, talking to my brother, my twin, and he said, oh, I love it, but I can't drink it, it gives me a headache. And I thought, I think it gives me a headache too. <laughs> but I had never connected that before. Not quite a headache, it just sort of makes the front part of my brain feel hollow. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. But I didn't really think about that as, as, didn't connect that somehow with what I was drinking. How does it make you feel, Gwen? Well, the, the only thing that I find off-putting is your description of the smell. Ah, uh, yeah, another insect-based conversation. <laughs> what, does it, what does it smell like? It, it smells almost exactly like the droppings of an Australian species of stick insect called Maclay's spectre, oh. um, which is a six-inch-long thorn-covered, scorpion-looking mofo um, with uh, the males have the capability to fly around and scare the bejesus out of you, the females have the ability to flick dung and eggs about eight feet in any direction. I mean... I know, why not? Um, <laughs> that makes me want to drink it more. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, an olfactory salute to a, a really badass um, insect. In fact, they are so badass that they cover their eggs, or rather they attach a small parcel of um, ant attractant to their egg. Rather than trying to hide them from the ants, they say, ants, here are my eggs, what are you going to do with these? 
and Australian ants, including the bulldog ant, I think, drag them right down into the into the base of the nest. The bull ants. Bull ants. Sorry, the bulldog is the Texan one. Mm. Um, uh, and they uh, they eat off the ant attracting, and they just leave the egg in the nest where it's nice and warm, and they protect it from predators, apart from the ants. And then the ants hatch, and the baby stick insects are black with a red head and run around like ants. And they smell like ants because they've been in the ant nest for a couple of months. And they have about mm, 12 hours to get as far away from the ants as possible before the smell wears off. <laughs> so they run like lunatics for about 12 hours, and then they stop. They just stop and freeze. And then they change color. They go from being black and red to being tree-colored. They change behavior, they change the way they smell, they change the way they stand, and they stop trying to pretend to be an ant, and they start trying to pretend to be a stick. <laughs> um, and if they're lucky, they're far enough away from the ants that they do this, they don't get anted. Uh, and if they're unlucky, they get anted, and the circle of life continues. Wow. So you were talking about biodiversity <clears throat> in the insect kingdom. I was, kingdom. I was. Only because we talked about uh, lack of sleep briefly, yes. Gwen. Um, and I was mentioning that in May I'm going to be doing a lack of sleep experiment slash challenge. And I link this back to the fact that we've lost a huge quantity of our biodiversity in the UK over the last hundred or so years. And what's interesting about that psychologically is that nobody's noticed because it's happened over four generations. And it happens so slowly that, that we go, oh, there are just a few fewer bugs around but it feels about the same as last year, which felt about the same as the year before. The difference between the years hasn't been high enough for people to go, this is the apocalypse of bugs and we have not noticed. Mm. If there were YouTube videos from 100 years ago, if there were um, selfies of people around flowers, you would have seen a cloud of butterflies, a cloud of bees um, that we do not know the like of anymore. Driving down the motorway used to be a case of stopping at every single service station to clean the bugs off the windscreen. We don't do that more than once a week nowadays, regardless of how much we drive. So, how has this happened? All sorts of reasons, uh, loss of um, meadows, loss of wildlands, change in um, uh, tree and forestry uh, use, and the addition of a huge amount of pesticide. One of the most dangerous, the neonicotinoids. Why dangerous? Um, they're all dangerous to bugs, that's kind of the idea of a pesticide. But the neonicotinoids um, are particularly dangerous because they are thought to be well understood and their effects are well um, characterised and they don't affect species they're not meant to affect. Which is rubbish. Um, there are various papers showing massive broad spectrum effects that people don't know. One of which is if you get a tiny whiff of neonicotinoid anywhere near honeybees, they drop dead. But there are some that just forget the way home and they fly and they walk and they fly and they walk and they fly and they walk and then they drop dead from exhaustion, which is what my event is about. Uh, I am huh. trying to uh, raise funds and awareness um, of this, uh, awareness of the problem and funds for Bug Life UK and the RSPB who are trying to protect bugs in this country um, by acting like a neonicotinoided honeybee which is to say I am going to be moving non-stop for as long as I can. And that's human-powered mo movement. So walking, running, swimming, paddleboarding, canoeing, cycling, whatever. I'm just not allowed to stop. And uh, what is the potential possibility of you <clears throat> dropping, dropping dead? <laughs> I don't think I'm as tough as a honeybee. I think I'll probably pass out first. Okay. Um, the 
the human record for to uh, distance walked in one go without stopping is is in no risk from me, but it's something like 400. I can't remember if it's kilometers or miles. It's a stupendous distance. Um, the voluntary record for how long you can stay awake is 11 days, and I don't think I can get anywhere near that either. But um, what I can do is get in touch with a bunch of Cambridge-based and London-based um, uh, zoologists and people who would like to have their voice on this herd and interview them while I am getting further and further into the pit of despair and lack of sleep um, and then stitch it together into a, a, a film or something I intend to release later. I mean, that's. is there a place where people can go and support it? There is. There's a Facebook group called Entodurance, which is a cute portmanteau of entomology and endurance. Uh, my brother came up with that. It's not patented, but it should be. Um, <laughs> and there will soon be a GoFundMe. I, the reason it doesn't exist... No, not GoFundMe. A, um, a just giving. Um, the reason it doesn't exist yet is that... Um, is that the two charities are members of different giving sites and neither one of them wants to, sh to sign up to another one. So I'm either going to toss a coin or uh, negotiate better. Well, I'll, let me know when you've decided and I'll, I'll plug it on, on this podcast. Very kind. Uh, <clears throat> but you've been wrestling with the reality of a lack of sleep now. Is that making you more worried about this? It really is, which is why I raised it. Um, I have been somewhat bolshy about lack of sleep. Um, when I was at uni, I, I managed about 60 hours um, just as an experiment, and you know, it was fine. I didn't think it really affected me. Having now had two children for a week, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I'm just worse at it than I used to be, or if I've got more on my mind than I used to have. But either way, I can feel that compression of thinking space, and everything's getting fuzzy. I think Gwen's dealing with it much better. How are you finding lack of sleep? Well, today is, given you looked after them both last night for the first time, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, how I think I'm better at it than last time. That's interesting. I think that um, my expectations are more in line with the reality. Um, yeah, so I think I'm better at it. Do you think that uh, being better at it, having had a child for a while, uh, might have anything to do with how Jasmine Paris completely trashed the record recently? Just thinking about that. What what happened? Um, so Jasmine Paris is a, um, a veterinary surgeon that I used to work with when I was at Edinburgh. She's also a very good fell runner, an endurance athlete. Mm -hmm. And um, about three weeks ago, she did the Montan Spine Race, which goes from Derbyshire to the Scottish borders along Pennines. It is a um, endurance walking slash running event um, and it's unlike many of the sort of really long ultramarathon-esque events it's continuous um, 268 miles um, and she not only finished first but also destroyed the previous record by 12 hours so she did it in 83 hours and some number of minutes. Her previous record was a man's record. Was a man's record, yeah. And so there was, I think in this field, there were 136 people who raced. Um, 125 of them were men. Um, and she just obliterated the field and wiped the, you know, the, the previous record off the map. She slept for two and a quarter hours in 83-something hours. 
Um, she stopped for seven and a half hours, but she was still expressing breast milk for her daughter at each rest stop and had to eat. And so didn't really get very much sleep between the Sunday morning and the Wednesday night when she finished. Um, but she, it's such a feat of um, endurance. She's such an impressive woman. So we, we talked about her ability to deal with sleep deprivation and wondered if being a veterinary surgeon, so used to doing a lot of out of hours, and with a um, toddler daughter, meant that she was able to use these skills to... Some sort um, of hormetic effect to continue a lack of sleep yeah, that absolutely. made her more capable of dealing with that lack of sleep. That's yeah. an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, she's, it's, worth, it's worth having a look at the videos and the news stories because she made them with all the major news channels. Um, especially is the fact that you know the race is so long. Two thirds of it is in the dark. It's in winter on the Pennines. Yeah, snow, hail, <laughs> blowing winds, uh, having to carry all the gear you would need for an emergency sleep out. Yeah. And running two hundred was it sixty eight? Two hundred sixty eight miles. More than ten marathons, back to back, continuously. It's crazy. I was yeah. I was so kind of uh, done at the end of my first marathon. I can't imagine running any more after that. <laughs> another nine. Yeah. <laughs> another nine, another no nine marathons between. with no <laughs> gap in between. I mean, I mean, your knees, oof. <laughs> oh. this a, what a terrible thing. And what have you been wrestling with recently? Other than the process of having made a person a week ago. My word, that has really put me on the spot. Um... I feel like, um, yeah, I feel I feel like probably dealing with um, dealing with the kind of end stage of pregnancy, um, anticipating birth, having a baby, then dealing with two children. I feel is uh, probably enough <laughs> struggles. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, almost certainly. You're quite an intellectual person. And it's sort of interesting just the brief conversation that we were having before about something that I think is often characterised as a purely physical process, actually having or being capable of having a very mental element to it. Mm. Um, and you're, you're teaching some of that stuff now. Yeah, just to, um, just to medical students who... Uh, in our society, many people don't have the exposure to um, what pregnancy and birth um, are normally and what they can be. And um, as both Greg and I are vets, I think we've seen a lot more normal births of animals um, and a lot of the same principles apply. So it's been very interesting twice going through pregnancy and birth as a veterinary surgeon and seeing the differences between how the veterinary profession and the medical profession approach pregnancy and birth. I think one of the things that I found quite interesting was the, uh, the assumption that you go to hospital. Um, with, with animals, you... Oh, tiny bug. For those listening, there are four people in this room, uh, and only three of them are bigger than a large bag of flour. <laughs> um, all right, I was wrong. There, there are now two people in this room. Um, the, as a vet, it's only the very sickest animals you take to a hospital. Because taking an animal to a hospital takes it away from its 
uh, its environment that it has learnt to live in. Mm. Um, so much of how do you breathe, how do you eat, how do you stay warm enough um, mm. is, is based on your responses to your environment, right? So you change the animal's environment, it has to learn how to live all over again. And the same is true of people. We, we are home creatures. Um, we, uh, we stay calm and happy in our home space. And giving birth works so much better if you're calm and happy that staying at home seemed like, like a, the standard veterinary choice, exactly what you would do if, if it was a, an animal um, other than a human. I think people are bad at evaluating risks. I Maybe. mean, people will... I was thinking this in the, the other day, listening to uh, Jonathan Haidt talking to... I, I listened to a couple of podcasts with him. One, he spoke to Joe Rogan, whose podcast I don't normally listen to, but will occasionally if he has a good guest, and also to Sam Harris, whose podcast I semi-regularly listen to uh, because it sort of falls in my wheelhouse of... Uh, trying to talk about difficult things. Uh, but Jonathan Haid has this point uh, that I think he makes well about bringing up children and the way that kind of safety culture around children, this pre prevention of acute risks mm -hmm. or what are perceived to be acute risks, abduction, uh, pain broken bones accident hit by a car yeah, yeah sure. these these major risks and protecting children from that he his hypothesis putting aside social media which is another thing that's influenced people's mental well-being in the last few years particularly but that by protecting children from this risk children are anti-fragile and part of the process of them becoming stronger is suffering small yeah. sufferings <laughs> Uh, but that by protecting them in this in this way from what is perceived to be acute risks, you end up leaving them very fragile later in life. So they're much more likely to suffer from anxiety or depression or uh, suicidality or eating disorders or self-harm in other ways. But And I think that's an interesting hypothesis and probably true. It feels true. I don't know where you'd get the data on that exactly. I might be able to throw some in on that there in in sweden and uh i want to say norway i think sweden and denmark there are um risk parks for kids involving um gwen yeah. do you remember the um the risk parks for kids in uh nordic countries including yeah. fire broken glass um bits of old burnt out cars and um making your own den out of lots of sharp bits of metal and wood. Yes, I remember that. Um, we, were just, <clears throat> we were just about to start talking about um, uh, assessment of risk by people in the medical system. Yeah. And before we got onto that, we were talking briefly about um, how people in general have been paying a lot of attention to uh, large, acute, negative risk, mm -hmm. uh, potentially at the at the cost of paying attention to smaller, long-term positive risk, more yeah. positive chance. Yeah. Um, Alice was wondering if there was data she could find on that, and I thought the, the outcome, the kind of um, resilience of kids that lived near and not near one of these parks might be quite a good source of data. 
yes yeah but the point the point being basically i think that in this way people will tend to go to a hospital because they are afraid of these Big acute, negatives. Big negatives. Yeah. If it goes wrong and it goes badly wrong and you're at home, you don't have access to these hospital resources. Mm-hmm. And I think people put a lot of weight on those major things. I've been thinking about the attribution of blame and culpability in that context of, of parents who let their kid walk to school. If that kid is damaged in that process, will feel incredibly responsible yeah. in a way that is not quite to the same level or something there's something different about it if your child is later on in life suffering from anxiety or depression or other things you might as a parent feel very guilty and very culpable but it's a different quality the, of culpability to yeah many, sure you can play steps. outside and then they break their arm yeah there's a there's a thousand steps between uh being depressed when you're 14 um and the uh, prevention of risk exposure when you're three. Mm, yeah. It's incredibly difficult to track who's responsible for what, and that's probably a good thing. But also we have now culpability distribution, where you have really bad effects happening to people with trolling or online mm. harassment, but each individual contributor is only contributing one horrible tweet. Mm-hmm. Mm. So in that instance, if somebody is being harassed or damaged or... You know, it's it's being stoned to death by pebbles. How do you attribute responsibility in that way? At a certain point, there's too many people to blame. I think that's why people come down so hard on individual perpetrators, because that individual perpetrator who does something obviously wrong becomes a cipher for the hundreds of people doing tiny wrongs. Mm-hmm. You point to Liam Neeson as the worst racist in the world, where your problem is actually with... Hundreds of thousands of people who were just a little bit racist. Liam Neeson. Oh, yeah. There was a a news scandal recently. He was talking about a movie that he's in where the plot is based around revenge. And he said, I I don't know what the question was. And seeing the whole interview, it seems contextualised, but as is the habit of people nowadays, they've drawn out the worst possible thing and given the worst possible interpretation of it he said when he was younger he had a friend who was raped and um that when she told him that the person who'd raped her was black he went out for a week every night looking to pick a fight with a black guy hoping to kill him Hmm. and then you know said obviously that's not how i think now and that was a terrible thing to think and you know so on so forth but he's being pulled out as kind of typical of 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 all racists and of the fact that he used any black guy who started a fight as a proxy for this one perpetrator. But, I mean, of course, if you're young and angry, I think everybody does that to a certain extent. Uh, also, if that's all the information he had about the perpetrator, that's very easy to get hung up on. Yeah, and, uh, again, that that is something that can be characterised as a racist thing. Mm-hmm. It could also be characterised... I mean, even the fact that he asked the question, what colour was this man, mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is a racist thing. But I don't think he was suggesting that this was the right way to have thought. Oh. And just the... Uh, oh, no, she's choked on oh, boo. Um, <laughs> the things you love the most destroy you. <laughs> just thinking that. I was just thinking, choking on boob. It's not a terrible way to go, to be fair. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, but this idea I think that people have of of any kind of responsibility, I think, is is the way that people approach that is usually wrong. Hmm. Okay, so to put that into personal context, mm. am I right down here? Yeah, you're right to sit down on the ground. Um, thank you for permission to sit on the ground in, your house. in my own house. <laughs> um, well, you did ask. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking more about microphone leveling. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, to put that into context of culpability and assessment of risk, in a hospital there is always going to be somebody who is um, most blamable. And in most cases that's going to be the doctor. Um, because they are the ones that, that society has shown us are the people you sue when mm. things go wrong. Um, and the next people that you go after are the parents in the case of a birth, um, normally the mother. Um, and it then becomes, as you were saying earlier, the number of steps between a later benefit and an immediate negative are wildly different. So it's a lot easier to track back blame from something bad going wrong now and say something bad has gone wrong now, you were to blame. And to make that connection is very easy. And as soon as you make the connection, uh, you you affect that somebody's wealth, life, standing, whatever. The likelihood of something going right is much higher. But the effect you get from, say, uh, dosing a kid's skin with lactobacillus through a vaginal delivery versus um, coating a kid's skin with Carinobacter, uh, a different skin bacteria, by taking it out through cesarean section leading to eczema or no eczema when the kid's 15 years old. That, that logic linkage is so much longer. Mm. And it's 15 years ago. Nobody remembers who your obstetrician was 15 years ago. That linking back and saying, thank you so much for not giving me eczema, never happens. So obviously the entire system puts a huge amount more um, weight on preventing the the immediate negatives than on providing the later positives. Yes, and then there's sort of even even more kind of spread when it comes to that kind of culpability as well, because as with Liam Neeson, the doctor is doing what they think is correct because of the teachings that have been done by then, because of one lecture they went to at university, because of one textbook they've read, because of eight other deliveries that they've seen where this was the case and this turned out to be the bit that worked out or, yeah. you know, ended in an apparently healthy birth. The, it is, again, yeah, much more diffuse. We need a doctor in this conversation. <laughs> we've, got, we've got two vets and an ex-lawyer. To... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the reason I say that is that after Tapa, my daughter was born, I wrote a long piece about... Uh, exactly about this, about the understanding of future versus current risk and how um, the NHS or really all Western medicine is set up to prevent those those immediate negatives rather than provide those distant positives. And I got torn to shreds by two of my doctor mates who who had been thoroughly trained or indoctrinated. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you, thank you. Um, into understanding that their job was to prevent loss of life. Uh, whereas I really believe that when you, a, a veterinary job is to increase 
good life. Uh, well-being, right? It's to yeah. it's to increase the health and well-being of animals under our care, mm. rather than to prevent them from dying. Mm. And that frame shift was really obvious between the doctors and the vets who were who were having the conversation that I started on on Facebook. Yeah, well, I was thinking before about uh, this in the shift of attitude with the medical staff between the hospital, where I spent a lot of time with my mum mm -hmm. in various different manifestations of various different symptoms and, you know, offshoots of her MS and then her cancer and then going to the palliative care ward where people were... The attitude was completely different. They were not trying to solve a problem anymore because death was inevitable. So it became actually much nicer. In I think it, some some medical care is the analogy I would say is if you're being hit on by someone who's sort of treating your personality like a, an obstacle in the way of getting to your vagina. <laughs> Weirdly, I wouldn't know what that's like. <laughs> like a, like they're, they're sort of trying. They're trying still to talking you. to you, but you can tell that they're not talking to you. They're trying to talk their way through the maze of whatever your brain is, whatever Rubik's Cube, they're trying to figure it out. Gwen, she's on to me. <laughs> <laughs> but this is it's in a similar way. I feel like sometimes in hospitals, if not often in hospitals, if not almost always in hospitals, you are treated as sort of a, an obstacle in the way to the disease. They want to solve the disease or fix the disease. And your own opinions on the matter, your own feelings about it, your own uh, modesty or fear or whatever it happens to be is mm -hmm. just something that's in the way mm -hmm. of of them getting to, you know, the disease and fixing the disease, whether you want them to or not. I mean, of course, you sort of want them to, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Ugh. Sort of, an, even when it comes to uh, giving medication, I remember sort of when when things were urgent, we'd go to the the public hospital at St Vincent's, and when we had more time to plan, we'd go to the private hospital also at St Vincent's. They were next door to each other. And I remember taking mum into the private hospital and they didn't have the records from the public hospital so they tried to give her a medication that she had had a very bad reaction to. And I said, oh no, she, she is allergic to this, she has a bad reaction to this. And they were really annoyed. They were sort of annoyed by the fact that she had this reaction to this medicine because it... Hmm. it, it, it there was something about that, of them wanting to have the right answer and being frustrated that they didn't have the right answer, rather than it being a dialogue. Yeah, yeah. This is a... In the way that you're annoyed when someone poses a question in a, a maths test that they actually didn't teach you how to solve. Yeah, yeah. But then there's there's frustration and there's annoyance, and the, the difference, I guess, is, is directionality. Mm. Um, I would say being being presented with a drug that would solve your problem as you see it. But a patient who can't have that drug would, I think, be frustrating. Yeah. But I don't think I'd get annoyed because there's nobody to be annoyed with. There's just the situation, right? Yeah. This is a... Getting back to our... But I think that's the thing. The element of there being a person in the room mm -hmm. between you and the disease mm -hmm. was the thing that was frustrating to them. But the fact that there's a person means... Frustration is the incorrect response. 
because it comes across as annoyance. Yeah, that's fair. It, it is actually an interpersonal communication, not just a communication between the doctor and the disease. And that's why I mean that idea of trying to kind of get we, the we person get to out the of the way. We get the nub of why I'm a vet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our conversation on um, on medical decision making, uh, negatives versus positives. Mm. We really need a doctor on this conversation because I think we are all thinking of the medical profession as it was five years ago. There are huge changes afoot, um, and I get this a lot from my my medical mates who are are telling me more and more that it's about um, uh, days of quality life rather than days of life. It's about um, giving somebody the best experience rather than giving somebody uh, a lower chance of dying. Mm. Um, I never heard anything about this when I was at uni from my, my medic mates then. I certainly never heard anything about it at hospitals or anything before I went to uni. Um, and I, I wonder if we are having a conversation about medicine as it was rather than medicine as it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, my experience now with the hospitals is coming on five years old. But I think often with these things, there is a lot of talk before there is action. And I speak as an ex-lawyer, someone who was in a big <laughs> law firm where there was a lot of talk about mental health. Mm-hmm that uh, was not necessarily reflected in the way that people were behaving or being treated. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know there are good doctors. I know many good doctors, and I've had incredibly good experiences with hospitals and nursing staff and, and doctors of all kinds. Uh, and you always remember the negatives much more than you remember the positives. Uh, and I think you have to respect that that is often where doctors are coming from. They see the worst of all cases, and those are the cases that stick with them. So when they're making their own risk-based decisions, those bad outcomes weigh so much more heavily on their decision-making processes. And so I think it's I have a lot of a lot of doctor friends, and I think that it's actually very hard for them to have normal births and normal pregnancies simply because. They're aware of all the things that could possibly go wrong, and they're often not aware of things that can go really right. And so I think that it's I think it's a very hard job to be in to then have a normal look at normal life. Is there anything we can bring from uh, the conversation we had with um, I and F? Mm. I think one thing. So these are these are two friends of ours. Um, one is a colleague, and his wife is a doctor who very recently had their first child. Um, one thing that she said that, she, that I thought was very interesting was um, that when doctors think about risk or talk about risk with people, they talk about not only the incidence, the likelihood of that of the of the bad outcome happening, but also how bad that bad outcome would be to that person. But the problem is, is that the bad outcomes they're talking about are things that would be cataclysmically awful to anyone. <laughs> so even when the risk is infinitesimally small, if you say to the person, how bad would it be if your baby died? Then you will get, there is no scope for any subtlety mm. and any consideration of just how low that risk is. So I think there are there are challenges that doctors face just in the way that they're taught to think about risk and how to communicate it 
to help people actually understand what that risk means. A good case study is the the induction numbers, right? Yeah. Um, so if you if you have a baby inside you and it's been there for 42 weeks, um, a lot of medical staff in the UK would recommend that you get injected with um, oxytocin well, uh, uh, analog, yeah. right, um, to to induce labour. Yes, I remember uh, talking about this with a friend who had that exact uh, choice presented to them. And it's not a very pleasant experience, as far as I can tell. It can be horrendously painful. Um, not that birth is a walk in the park. Uh, obviously, I've done it myself. Many No, <laughs> no wait. Um, the, the contractions brought on by a synthetic um, uh, oxytocin drug can be more painful. The process itself can be shorter, sharper, more likely to lead to uh, tearing, long-term problems with... Um, Urinary function, long-term problems with sexual pleasure, um, uh, increased likelihood of infection, things like that. Um, but getting the babies out, if they've been in there for 42 weeks, does increase the chance of getting them out alive. If, for example, you have 410 women who are 42 weeks pregnant and you induce all of them, you will get one more baby out alive than you would otherwise. So that would be a number needed to treat of 410, which is very, very low. Mm. Um, no, sorry, very, very high. Um, it's a very low if, uh, efficacy. Um, but as Gwen was just saying, if you ask somebody who is 42 weeks pregnant whether they want this thing that will increase the, the decrease the likelihood that they will have a dead baby, they will say yes. Mm. And then you say, well, bear in mind that there's only a 1 in 410 chance that you actually need this. They're like, okay, 1 in 410 is a, f is a fraction I don't inter interact with during normal life. I don't know what 1 in 410 feels like. I barely know what 10% feels like. And I'm talking personally here, right? I struggle to tell the difference personally between 10% risk and 40% risk. Um, but on the other hand, it's dead or not dead. And I know exactly what that means. So I'm going to go with that in my decision-making process. Um, the only thing that really could be done against that is what vets are trained to do, which is to offer an opinion, to say, in your situation, I would do this. But that is That's literally... That's not what doctors tend to do. Well, it's also the most suable thing you could ever do. <laughs> it is, right? To, to say, in your situation, I would do this, literally means I am a trained professional and I am giving you a recommendation and if it goes wrong, that's on me. Mm. And you can see why people are disincentivized to do that. Well, because the doctors themselves don't really know what 1 in 410 mm. feels like. True. And for them, it doesn't feel like 1 in 410 because they see dead babies all the time. Mm. It feels incredibly common to them because they work in hospitals where bad things happen. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that all hospitals are terrible. I'm just saying bad things happen in hospitals. Yeah. Yeah, by definition, you don't go to the hospital when you're having a great day and feel fantastic. Well, the thing is, there's one group of people who do, which is pregnant mothers. They're the only group of people who go to hospital when they're having a great day and they feel fantastic. And for me, that's a little odd. It gets back to the, to the where are you most likely... I can hear Tab, but yeah, yeah. Um, I can Guys, I'm going to step out for a second. I'll be right yes, back. absolutely. Uh, well, we can take a, a little break here if you like. 
Okay, so uh, we return uh, to the podcast after a brief break to add a human being. Uh, not not another <laughs> one, but uh, now there are five people in the room. So uh, I guess um, if we're talking about all of these bad things and the way that people value the bad things, then and saying that that's possibly the wrong way to be looking at things or an understandable way to be looking at things, but that there is an alternative way of approaching the world, what would you say that is? I think I would jump in and say, I think I would say that you can assess a, uh, a choice based on either the likelihood, uh, the, the kind of risk and damage way of looking at it, how likely is this to go wrong and how bad would it be if it goes wrong? Or you can do the flip side and say, what are the possible outcomes of this going right? And how likely are they to happen? It's, it's two ways of uh, assessing a choice. Um, and we as a society pay a lot of attention to the uh, what could go wrong and how bad would it be? Um, and tend to sweep under the rug the, the flip side of things. Um, birth, ex birth is a good example, the one we've been talking about the last 15 minutes. Um, we all know what a bad birth looks like, I think. We hear a lot about forceps and uh, uh, caesarean sections. We hear a lot on film and TV of screaming. We hear a lot of push, push, push. Um, we hear, we see a lot of blood and we hear things like, he's not breathing, uh, get the crash cart, all that sort of stuff. But a good, normal, healthy birth is incredibly rare to find on TV or in books or anything else because I guess it's not considered exciting. It's not cinematic. <clears throat> no. It's a lot less uh, screaming than I had been led to believe. <laughs> um, Gwen, do you want to talk about what, how these two were born? Would you consider yeah. them good births? Yeah, I think I was very lucky. I had two really good births, both at home, within two feet of um, your microphone. <laughs> Um, but what was important to me when I was deciding what I wanted, how I wanted these guys to be born was I wanted to have a very low risk, well the lowest risk of injury to myself because I knew that I could be a better mum if I was able to move around and I was able to um, recover quickly so I could spend time with, with my, my babies. Um, I wanted a high chance of having a normal sex life afterwards because um, that's very important in my relationship so I wanted to avoid as much as possible tearing or being cut um, and I've, I'm a vet so I've seen a lot of a lot of normal births I wanted somewhere that was safe and dark and quiet and calm with people that I knew and so all of these things meant that I um, chose to have um, both of these at home and it was, they were incredible experiences, ones I'm really proud of and um, ones that I don't just celebrate the outcome but the, the actual process as well was so, was so physiological and so, it was amazing to see what my body can do, um, especially when I'd seen it in so many animals, it really was such a privilege. I feel very lucky that as a woman that I can get to experience birth, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I guess the I had the the almost the exact same thought process, but from another point of view, which was 
I was kind of watching going, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. That looks amazing. <laughs> and the standard guy response is, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. And that is not what I felt at all. I felt very much, um, you know, obviously very supportive, very loving, but also very jealous. Um, <laughs> it, it, looked, um, it looked phenomenal. You did really well. And, uh, and there was a lot of smiling and laughing and... Uh, very, as far as I know, no crying that wasn't happy crying. No, and it would be, I would be wrong if I said that it wasn't painful. There are points that are very painful, but the pain passes really quickly, and it pain happens between contractions, and then it goes away again, and then you have time to recover. It's not like cutting yourself or like hurting yourself. It's a very different kind of pain. It's more like rowing a two-kilometer. It's more like yeah, right. very hard. It's like a very hard sporting event, um, but yeah, an incredible experience. Well, I think that is a, a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for having tea with me. <laughs> it was great fun. Thank you very much. Thank you.